Our last talk for the day, um, Jessica Crisp, who's the Associate Director for Design Research at IBM, um, and is going to be talking about how we connect research activities to value um, so that they can be appropriately resourced and prioritised. Um, I, I like the description that you gave around how you help organisations tackle their big rocks. I, I love that characterisation of it. Please join me in welcoming Jessica to the stage. Thank you. Uh, proposal. I definitely didn't expect to be closing this out. Uh, thanks everyone for hanging in there. Uh, and I know some of you are probably wondering uh, why I chose to talk about value today. There are definitely sexier topics out there like behavioural economics or AI and I'm almost talking myself out of it at this point, um, but uh, hang in there. Uh, I chose value because it's really at the heart of everything that we do. We don't just do research for the fun of it, although it is very fun. We do research because it adds value to the businesses and organisations that we work for. So why, historically, have we been so bad at talking about value? My name is Jess, uh, and I've done everything from market research to UXR, and it might seem like the one constant in all of that is research, and it, it is. Uh, but really what I'm passionate about is driving change uh, to people, uh, to make their lives better, to make their businesses better, to make our world a little bit better. And so that's why uh, for the last couple of years at IBM, I've really been trying to make value uh, the heart of everything that we do in the research team. Oh, I've just pointed it there. I've been told not to point. Uh, so uh, you might be thinking, okay, what does this have to do with me? Uh, and as designers, as design researchers, we're faced with so many problems. I can't fit them all onto one slide. I know we're missing things like recruitment. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, but hopefully there's one up there that resonates with you. First of all, uh, as designers, we're often faced with these massive problems with not a lot of an idea of where we should be starting. We've also got the risk of spending a lot of time on something that just doesn't have the impact that we thought it would. And then the dreaded question for design researchers, you come back, you've got all of these amazing pain points and you play them back to your stakeholders and they say, so what? Why should we care? Uh, why should we prioritise these over uh, some of the things that our dev team is saying that they need, for instance? On the flip side, uh, it's not just designers that have problems, our stakeholders and decision makers do as well. Uh, so I've just said POs for the sake of this talk. Uh, they're often faced with uh, a, a lack of data really at the core of everything. Uh, they're trying to make a sense of data that they might not trust or that just might not exist at all. Uh, we're also pretty privileged as researchers, I think, the fact that we get to engage uh, with our users day in and day out. Uh, a lot of different roles don't have that opportunity. And it's a combination of these two problems that leads us to our final one for our POs. And that is that they're making uh, decisions and having to manage a lot of really risky assumptions in the process. Um, but looking at all of these problems, value, and if design research considered value a bit more, uh, would actually solve all of them. So how can we as design researchers go about this? This interplay of uh, research 
and value is a really exciting place uh, to be in. And at a high level, it's pretty easy, right? Uh, there's only two approaches at a high level. So first, we've got our top-down approach. This is where we're breaking down large non-figures. You might be sitting down looking at a finance report going, look, this is our revenue, this is our capex, our opex, sales. You can start playing around with them. And then we've got our bottom-up approach, and this is usually where we start as designers. This is all about building a value case uh, from user feedback and data and starting to piece it together. It's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Uh, but, and so even though we st usually start with our bottom-up approach, we can get a lot of value from a top-down valuation. This can help focus our teams on the big problems that actually matter. But on the flip side, having researchers involved in those conversations about top-down valuations can help manage the assumptions that are being made and improve the quality uh, of our estimates. So it turns out that uh, clients are a little bit touchy about sharing value data. Uh, they <laughs> couldn't really uh, get anyone on board with sharing what their uh, dollar values are. So I figured, what the heck, let's do some research. We're all researchers, right? Uh, so if everyone uh, could stand up if you've ever had a bad onboarding experience. I know we've got at least one with Woolworths somewhere. So have a <laughs> get out of your seat. I know they're a little bit uncomfortable for those in the, <laughs> in the chairs at the front. Uh, it can be anything. It could be your very first job at a coffee shop job. It could be what you're doing now. Um, okay, let's stay standing. Um, if you're pretty sure uh, that there wasn't a formal onboarding process for that experience. Okay, a couple of people standing, but we've still got a lot of people up and out of their chairs. Great to see, this is fantastic. Uh, proves my hypothesis, onboarding sucks. And it turns out that you're not alone. Uh, Gallup did some research and they put out this uh, article in 2021 saying that, and you can sta sit down now if you'd like, uh, <laughs> that one in five employees uh, reported that their most recent onboarding experience was poor uh, or that they received no onboarding at all. So for the people that are standing, you're definitely not alone. And let's pretend that a stakeholder in our business has read this on the tram on their way into the work today and they went, gee, I think our onboarding experience sucks as well. Let's get a team onto it. Let's go after this full force. Like, let's fix it. Uh, and so we're going to play out this scenario together over the next 30 or 40 minutes. And we're going to take it step by step. So step one, when for me anyway, when I have an opportunity that's coming from within the business is to say, hold your horses to that stakeholder. Um, I like to make sure that there's actually value here and that we can expect to see some value before we start investing people's time and spending a lot of effort and getting emotionally attached to things. Um, I really want to make sure that we have a clear idea of what we're expecting from this. So where do I start from there? Nope, other way. I like to start with the value tree and some of you might know what a value tree is. Uh, you might have heard to them being referred to as driver trees or KPI trees. They're not new. Um, but what I find is that often they're being used by product owners, product managers, uh, which is a shame because they're a great way of visualising how our metrics connect up uh, to higher level outcomes. 
And often it's these metrics that we care about as researchers, that we're creating, that we're caring for day in and day out. And so it's a great way of helping us understand how the work that we do connects up and helps the broader organisation. It's also a great way to make sure that teams are focusing uh, on and they're, that they're prioritising impactful work and that that's consistent across all areas of your organisation. And even if you don't have a backlog full of opportunities to go after, uh, this is still a great tool uh, to invest some time into developing uh, because it can help with your generative research as well. You can go back to it and think, hmm, I found something unexpected. How does this fit in to our value model? So how do we build them? Unfortunately, they don't grow on trees. I wish they did. Uh, but they do take time and they take investment from your leadership team. So step one is always to engage with your leaders, your decision makers, to understand what they care about. And I start at the top of our tree. These are the things that are most stable over time. They're our business outcomes. And uh, they're usually at a pretty strategic high level and, again, stable over time. So we'll see things like uh, in the financial area, you might have increasing revenue, sustainability, one of my personal favourites. Uh, you might have something around your carbon footprint or for the things that just don't fit as nicely as we'd like, I always like to have a strategic uh, portion of the value tree. And this list can go on forever. Uh, it really depends on your organisation and the things that they care about. From here, we start to build on it. We connect our business outcomes to our value drivers, and they should go hand in hand. Uh, it's how we're going to, uh, well, the value drivers are the things that we can move. There are levers that we can pull to make sure that our business outcomes are moving in the direction that we want them to. So, for example, if we're going after sustainability and we want to consider our uh, carbon footprint, uh, we might choose to, say, increase our carbon capture or reduce our carbon emissions. But you can see that there's a couple of other examples up there. You can go after sales of a product to help uh, increase your revenue or maybe look to chase awareness. And if you're an OKR kind of person, I'm an OKR girl, uh, you might find that your objectives fit really nicely in as value drivers. So you've already done a bit of that work yourself. Uh, if you're not an OKR person, uh, but want to be, value trees can really help create uh, and focus your OKRs as well. And your key results fit unsurprisingly into the key metrics side of things. And this is how we go about benchmarking and measuring success. Uh, when we're doing this, I like to consider a mix of leading and lagging indicators. I know that historically we've been fans of lagging metrics. They're great, we can trust them. It's like a warm, safe feeling you get, right? Uh, but leading metrics are really what get us ahead of problems and make sure that we're uh, acting as soon as we can. So what does our value tree look like? Uh, the first thing you'll notice is it's a very small value tree and that's because I wanted to make sure that you could read it. Uh, these can go on forever and the other learning from pulling this together in PowerPoint is don't use the smart art feature. It's not fun. Uh, smart charts will not be your friend here. Uh, so I would really recommend sitting down and uh, with your leaders, uh, if you can in person, uh, kick it old school, do a whiteboarding session, uh, get out the sticky notes or uh, if you maybe care about uh, trees and how many post-its you're using, mural and mirror are also really handy. But what do we have up here? So I've taken a slice, which is the financial slice, and then I've taken a slice of 
that slice. So to keep it pretty basic, we've got our two usual suspects under financial. We've got increasing revenue and decreasing costs. Hopefully we all understand those. I thought those were the most straightforward ones I could possibly think of. And then below those, I've chosen two value drivers. This is where usually you'll blow out. Uh, you can keep going on and on and on forever. The ones I've chosen here are about employee productivity and we've got time on task sitting under that. So in the red, we have uh, time to complete onboarding for our graduates, our experienced hires and contractors. So calling it out very specifically. And then uh, to the right of that, under employee retention, what we have is my personal favorite, ESAT. We care if our employees are satisfied, if they're happy which is a bit of a leading indicator uh, as far as it comes to retention. And then, of course, we can't get away uh, without including a voluntary turnover rate. Not as much fun, not as sexy, I know. Okay, so we're done, right? Happy days, we've got a beautiful valley tree. Uh, no, we're never done. Uh, you can always keep coming back and adding to it. You'll find that you do keep adding to it and it grows over time. Uh, but before we move on from it, there are two things that I like to add in. And the first is adding in benchmarks. You don't want to get to the end of a project and go, we're pretty sure we had a 20% impact uh, on this key metric, but we can't be sure. And the business goes, are you sure you're delivering value? Uh, are you actually helping us do anything? Uh, so if you know the benchmarks, add them in then. It's really hard to remember back a year or two years and remember exactly where your benchmarks were then. The other thing is to prioritise business outcomes. Uh, you will find that different solutions, different pain points do fall under different value drivers and objectives. Or, and it starts to get a little bit complex to know what you should be focusing your time on. And so it's really important to sit down and have those hard conversations uh, as early as you can. And value conversations can get tough. They can get complex really quickly. I'm not going to make them sound better than they are. They're tough, um, but they're worthwhile having. But you can simplify them. And there are so many design tools that we can use as researchers to simplify those conversations. So I've pulled one out today, and that's t-shirt sizing. It requires a little bit of assumed knowledge. And that assumed knowledge is that everyone has either worn a t-shirt before, or that you know what a t-shirt is because you need all you need to know is that small comes before medium which comes before large so everyone understand the basic idea of t-shirt sizing perfect and what we do is you can either pull in your key metrics or your value drivers it depends on the scope of your problem and how confident you are in the key metrics for this one, I've taken in our key metrics because I'm pretty confident in them. And you start by doing a card sort activity. And the first is an easy cut. Uh, you go through and you say, what aren't we chasing? What's out of scope for our problem? In this case, uh, our onboarding problem. And you can see here that we think sustainability isn't going to be something we go after here. It's an easy no. I've put our carbon emissions up there. Next, small, medium, large. No surprises there. You can keep going. If you feel like you need more variation in there, you can have like extra small or extra large. You can mix it up. Uh, but I find that usually at this phase, you get enough out of three. Um, but small, medium, and large can mean different things to different people. And it means different things in different contexts as well. So just in the last few months, I've been through a problem space 
uh, where they were dealing with massive numbers. Uh, they felt like it was highly efficient. They'd been through it a few times. And an improvement of less than 1% was considered large. You've probably got some experiences that also fit in that box. Maybe your NPS is already at 99 <laughs> or something like that. Uh, I know we'd all love to have that problem. Um, but on the other end of things, maybe a large impact for someone else is 100% improvement. And we're not looking for specific percentages here, but we sit down with everyone and we talk about the brackets that we're thinking about. And so let's just say that we all agree that Small is 10 to 20% and large is 40 to 60%. And then we do a next round of card sorting. So whatever you've got left on the table, you start to sort into the different buckets, which will give us. Uh, so time for our contractors in the small bucket, uh, time for our experienced hires coming out uh, at the 20 to 40% mark. And then in large, we've got our ESAT and our time for our grads. And I know we're all researchers here, so we know that I don't really care about the numbers that much. Is it bad to say that on the record? Uh, what I actually care about is the variation that we're seeing here, because what I'm chasing in this activity is an idea of where we should be spending our time as researchers to make sure that we're not investing all of our time, narrowing down a space that even if we improve it by 100%, it's not going to have an impact on the things that we care about. So you can see here that ours actually has a pretty good range, so we're not going to redo it. But if not, what you'd do is you'd go and reset those buckets and you'd resort. And you can keep doing that until you're pretty happy that you're focusing your effort on the things that are going to matter the most. But in this process, uh, your stakeholders are probably going to say, what the heck? Why are you asking us to do this? We can't tell the future. How are we meant to know what impact we could possibly have on these uh, different value drivers and metrics? Uh, we're not sure. And this is just what we want. We want them to have that freak out moment because it helps get buy-in to the next phase, which is all about research. But it also calls out the assumptions that they're making to get to their valuations. And it also calls out the questions that they need answering to feel confident uh, with the decision moving forwards. So how do we get all of this down onto paper? We've seen a couple of examples of this over the day today. I think we started with it, now we're going to end with it. Uh, the one I like to use is the questions and assumptions activity. Again, nothing new. Um, but if you haven't used a questions and assumptions activity before, but you have heard a stakeholder come in and say, hey, I don't think we need to do research this time around because my gut is telling me X and my gut's never been wrong. Uh, this is the activity for you because uh, it's a great way of going, great, uh, I'd love to understand a bit more about what's happening on in your gut. Uh, I'd love to have that crystal ball. And uh, what assumptions are you making? Uh, when you say this is a no-brainer. And how risky are those assumptions? How certain are we about them? And what impact would it have if your assumption was wrong? And so this starts to call out the fact that when we're relying on our gut, we are making really risky assumptions, often ones that we're not aware of. Uh, we can also use this to start to understand the opposite of these, the questions, the things that they want answered. And so you'll see a bit of a mixed bag. Some of them will be massive, uh, like uh, onboarding is suboptimal. Well, 
no duh. It, it, we probably know that that's going to be true. Uh, but then there's also going to be some very specific call-outs. So maybe that it, they think that it takes two weeks for employees uh, to be onboarded currently. And this is all great information because it helps focus our teams when they do go out to do research uh, on answering the things that otherwise our stakeholders would be asking us uh, when we hand in our beloved slash hated reports at the end of our research. So hopefully at this stage, what you've got is buy-in from your stakeholders and your decision makers uh, to move on to step two, which is starting our bottom-up estimate. I love triangulating things, right? More data points is always good. And to do this, we sit down with our users and customers and start to see uh, things from their side. And obviously, this involves research. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you how to do your research. Uh, but what I am going to say is that it's really important to consider the stage you're at and the level of certainty that's required at that point. Uh, value, value activities research doesn't need to take forever. Um, but say you're spending $300 billion on a nuclear submarine off the back of your research, maybe you want to spend a little bit more time on this step. Uh, for we often are making decisions that are around the one and a half mil point. And so we're pretty confident uh, that we can get a good outcome end to end in under a sprint, so two weeks. If you haven't at this stage aligned with stakeholders on the value drivers and metrics, now's a really good point to circle back and make sure that you understand and that you're on the same page with what they want considered. And we use this to start to find out what data already exists. I know no one's mentioned uh, secondary research, but it's my favorite. Uh, always look to use what already is out there. And then what we do with our primary research is that we do just enough to fill in the gaps. We're not overcooking it. So we're going to pretend like we've set a world record. We've finished our research in under the minute or 30 seconds that it took us to get from the last slide. Uh, and we're going to walk through what an output could look like uh, for a squad that's focusing on our problem space, which is onboarding. So I like to start uh, our high level blueprints uh, with the tier one steps. And this is a really high level uh, overview. There's nothing too special going on here, but it helps orient us. It helps us focus and understand what's happening at the next level. And I just realized how small that is. At the next level, this is where we capture our big rocks. Uh, these are, we're not going into the same detail that you'd find in a blueprint or a journey map uh, because they take time to develop, they take time to create, and that's not really what we're after at this point. What we're after is to understand the big areas that we could be going after. So here you might have things like uh, setting up the computer, uh, present, uh, accepting your offer, uh, doing role-specific training and so on. And then below this is where we start to get into the value. So we're connecting these high-level steps uh, to the metrics that we care about and the value drivers that we care about. So first we've got our time. I'm making all of these figures up, don't worry. There's not uh, some poor soul spending eight hours uh, setting up a computer. This uh, business does not exist, thank goodness. Uh, but you can also start to track qualitative uh, metrics as well across these. So we've done it really successfully for things like risk, um, but you can see that we've got our ESAT here today. And then, We've got our 
final and our favourite section, which is all about pain points. So we're going to do some more research now today because I know that the seats are uncomfortable. So uh, what we do, so let's see if anyone's ever had a problem with the offer. You can stand up. Anyone ever like had a bit of drama going back and forth with the company? No? Yeah, sing a nod. Stand up. Yeah, you nodded. <laughs> yeah, cause stay standing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we support you. Uh, next up, we've got preparing for work. Has anyone like ever been maybe unsure of where to show up, when to show up, what they should be wearing, what the dress code is, uh, anything else, any stresses going on there? You can also stand up. Yep, starting to get there. Uh, arriving at the office. Have you ever had issues here? Um, this is where you might meet your colleagues, understand what your role's actually about. Um, Set up that computer. Yeah, got you. <laughs> got a few people there. Setting up computers is a pain. Uh, we've got our mandatory training. These are the things that you have to go through every time, right? It's telling you not to be a terrible person. Yeah, who hates doing that? Yep. Uh, then we've got our final one. You're actually working and you go, hang on, why didn't someone tell me how to do this before? Maybe it's that Woolies example. Someone didn't tell you how to like cut bread. Terrible, right? Hey, guys who stood up at the very beginning, did you get bingo? Have you said yes to all of these? Do you want to shout out bingo? Feels good. Bingo, perfect. Online, you can also yeah, type in if you got bingo. So what we do next is we compare all of these pain points and we start to connect them back to uh, our value levers and we have more discussions around, okay, knowing this, how much do we think we can shift the dial on these? And we go back to our uh, favorite t-shirt sizing exercise if that's what you like to do which I do, and it gives us my favourite layer, uh, which is a heat map, basically. It tells us where the most value sits across these often quite complex uh, problem spaces, and it gives us an idea of where we could spend uh, our most time uh, to get the most bang for our buck. And let's say that in this instance, the team goes, look, we're interested in job-specific training. At the moment, our grads are spending two weeks on it, Maybe that's not optimal. Maybe the real benefit here is doing job-specific training for the other personas so that we're not getting a low ESAT later on. And as much as I'd love to say that that's an easy thing to do, uh, it's not. Inferring impact, especially for value drivers and metrics that aren't as straightforward as time, is hard. Uh, but there are tools that we can use as researchers to give us a little bit more confidence in what we're putting forward. And a lot of these I like to, for, lo for a lot of these I like to look into futures thinking. I don't know if anyone's uh, a bit of a futures nerd. I am. Uh, they've got such a good toolkit to start getting people into uh, mindsets where they're thinking a bit more accurately about the future. The first one I like to start with is an easy one. What's our previous performance been? So if we're talking about ESAT, uh, have we gone after any initiatives in the past that have moved the dial on that figure? How much did it move it by? And we're starting with an easy conversation. Are we looking at the same ballpark? Are we higher or lower? Uh, and that's just to get the ball rolling. It's also really easy to just go out and start looking at what other people are doing. Let's say our competitors' uh, onboarding experience is at 90% and ours is at 50. Do we think we can get at that 40% uplift? Heck yeah, let's believe in ourselves. The final one, driver analysis. Uh, looking at uh, things like maybe our retention, we can start to look at 
offboarding and our exit interviews or surveys and going, okay, we think that 20% of those exits or those, um, yeah, exits could have been resolved if we went after, uh, say, the step that we selected on the slide earlier, which was all about job-specific training. And by using a combination of these, and there's definitely more out there, you can start to get a pretty good feel of what you'd expect. Again, we're not going after specific figures. If you're not confident about it, just make the bracket bigger. Uh, it's somewhere between zero and $100 million. We're definitely 100% confident it's going to come out there, right? And at this point, we've now got two different figures. We've got our top-down estimate from our senior stakeholders, and we've got our bottom-up uh, from engaging with our users. And it's always interesting to see if they line up. Um, and I was challenged by one of my junior teammates the other day when they said, what if they don't? What happens if our senior stakeholders think there's value, but our users just say no? There's no desirability. Our onboarding experience is perfect. Go to hell. Um, and I thought, gee, the answer's pretty obvious, right? Like, you pivot, you stop. Uh, but I think in practice, we all know that it isn't as straightforward as that. It can be really hard when you've got a stakeholder who's invested, who really believes in their gut and what their gut was telling them. Yep. Uh, but it can also be hard when you've sunk a lot of time into something. And I'm not a gambler, but sunken cost fallacy is definitely a real thing. What I am is a, an ice cream addict, a sugar addict. Uh, so I like to think of this as um, when you sit down to watch MasterChef with a tub of connoisseur ice cream, it's really misleading with that little lip at the bottom. And by the time you realize you're pretty close to the bottom, you go, what the heck? I may as well just finish the tub of ice cream. Even though I know I shouldn't, I'm just going to do it anyway. Because it's like, it's what, three more spoonfuls. It's not a, not a big difference. And so getting yourself into that mindset where you realize that everyone falls victim to this. It's not just a stakeholder being an idiot. Um, we need to support them in this decision. Because pulling the plug isn't easy. It hurts every time we do it. Uh, but we need to create a culture that celebrates it. Uh, it's a major win uh, calling it early before we do start sinking time into something. And it makes it even harder to say, let's stop. But to make it easier to break that news to our stakeholder who really trusts their gut, uh, it's important to stop and think about the possibility that we're making an error. Uh, is there actually value in this? And so I stop and I think about the research that we've done and think about if there's any bias that we're introducing in the process, that we're asking our users or customers to reflect on maybe a subconscious behavior. Have we spoken to the right people? Are they telling us the truth? Uh, all those fun things. Because building that trust with your stakeholders, uh, it starts to get to the point where they know that you've put the time and effort in. And when you're saying no, means no, they, they get it. They know that you've thought about them, you've thought about everything that could happen, and they understand where you're coming from. But let's say that everything's gone perfectly. It's always nice when everything lines up, when your stakeholders agree and your users agree, and there's so much value on the table to go after that it's fantastic. Uh, and so at this step, we start to talk about the addressable value. And you might be asking, what the hell is that? Uh, I don't blame you. I've thrown a few big words and random words around today. Uh, the first of those was the value ceiling. A value ceiling is the most value we can possibly squeeze uh, from a problem space. So for our onboarding, that was, say, the two weeks that the grads are spending on their role-specific training. Do we think that we're magically going to get rid of all two weeks? 
No, uh, that isn't realistic. And so our addressable value is the realistic value that we could possibly ever get uh, from that opportunity space. And it takes into consideration things like, is there another team going after that same problem space? Uh, if they are, how much do they think they're going to remove from that value ceiling? And we start to get it a little bit lower. And then we start to think about the solutions that are in the space, and it gets a little bit smaller again. And it gets us closer to what can actually be captured. And that's the final uh, row we've got there, which I'm not going to talk about, but this is where we want to get to, right? Uh, we want to get to a point where we can clearly articulate the value that we've created and captured for our organizations. So how can we do that as researchers? Often a lot of this is in the design space, but we can help designers, um, especially when we're crafting uh, and helping to craft their ideation sessions to make sure that it's focused. And I know how might we statements, probably most people know about them, right? Um, they're pretty basic. Uh, there's different ways you can structure them, but at their core, they're just an invitation uh, to help solve the problem that we're going after. And um, they should be based heavily on research, which is why I'm passionate about researchers actually developing these. Uh, the first step is always to go back through your research and define uh, what you're trying to solve. So how might we, uh, in this case, we're highlighting the user and their needs, uh, we're going after our new starters and uh, making sure that they've got their role specific information. And then we need to call out uh, the objective. I think this is a part that sometimes gets lost. I like to add a so that to my how might we uh, to really make sure that this can be easily taken out. Uh, and so the end there, what we're after is the best work on day one. And often objectives for our users can be a little bit different to the objectives that our business wants, but the magic is when those align. And so it's worth taking a little bit of time to think about how you could phrase it in a way that works for your decision makers as well as your users. And I like to play it back to both of them to make sure that they're on board and that we're not solving for one over the other. The one thing that I always will avoid is mentioning solutions. I've been in one of these before where they said, how might we implement blockchain? Uh, no one wants blockchain. <laughs> Our users do not want blockchain. Our users want solutions. They want improvements to their day-to-day -day life, right? Uh, so make sure that you're not falling into that trap. It is easy to fall into, especially if you've got a really uh, enthusiastic stakeholder who thinks that they've already got uh, world hunger solved. We've done the hard yards. Hopefully at this point we've connected our problem, our research to value, uh, and now we're going to go and ideate uh, and we need to connect our ideas to value. And the good news here is that designers often do this already, but they do it implicitly. Uh, and for us as researchers, we really need to call it out. And so who here has used solution hypotheses before? Yeah, a few hands. They're not new. Again, nothing I'm talking about is new. Uh, but it's a pretty basic way of structuring uh, how you think ideas are going to drive value. So for example, we believe that a solution is going to benefit some people uh, and uh, it's going to do so by delivering this benefit. We know that's successful when, and you can add your key metric here. You've already done the hard work in that value tree ages ago, right? So 
hopefully at this stage your designer friend or you as the designer has run a bit of an ideation session and come up with better ideas than I did at like midnight a few weeks ago. Uh, these aren't the best ideas, I'll own up to that. But we've got our buddy system, a Trello board and a welcome pack. Uh, pretty straightforward, right? And usually at this point you'd start and you'd cluster, put similar ideas together. Again, nothing crazy. But as a researcher, this is when we can yes and our designers and they're probably going to roll their eyes when we say uh, yes and can we add to this uh, but it will add value so the first step is to go okay who is it benefiting uh, buddy system we think it's going to we've put that out as an idea because we think it's going to benefit our graduates how's it going to benefit them uh, it's going to offer ongoing tailored support maybe they're going to feel a bit happier uh, they're going to know what to do uh, always good and then at this point, you've got a pretty well-rounded idea of what's going on with that solution and how it's going to deliver value. And afterwards, I like to go through with the team and add the final piece of the puzzle, which is our key metrics. And you can definitely add more here. I've tried to keep it as stylish as I possibly can as a researcher, so I've simplified it. Uh, but you can definitely add more users, uh, more benefits, more key metrics. More is more uh, in this case. And at this point, we've got a lot of information. Uh, we have our questions and assumptions, a top-down estimate, pain points, a bottom-up estimate, ideas, solution hypotheses, initiative overlaps, oh, and that was it. Uh, so we've often got a lot more information than we first think. Uh, and as great as that is, it means that we've got some tough decisions about how we communicate that information back to our decision makers um, and how we make sense of it. And as much as, as, much as I love Miro or Mural uh, for our journey mapping and creating our value trees, uh, it does limit us when it comes to talking about value. And the way that we store insights is going to have a real impact on how we can turn around rapid estimates. And so I'd recommend thinking about where you store uh, your value information. It is valuable. Uh, even if it's just putting it into a spreadsheet, uh, that works. So what can this look like? I've gone with Excel because I find that that's the only thing that we can all agree we've got access to, or uh, Google Sheets. I've heard it's better these days. Uh, and the first thing I do is to transpose that high-level blueprint that we saw earlier that's sitting in uh, your whiteboard, on your physical whiteboard or your digital whiteboard into uh, some high-level steps. So in the black there, you have our tier one steps, uh, so like arriving, uh, we've got our tier two steps under that, and then the personas. In the grey, I like to have one of these grey sections for every value driver that you've got. Uh, this is where we start to put our estimates. Again, we've got, I've just put time in there because it's a bit straightforward, it's easy to wrap your head around. Uh, so we've got our high and our low estimates. And if you're trying to pull it back to, say, increasing revenue or decreasing costs, which we were, uh, it's good to have some assumptions going in the background. So for example, we think that we're going to have 30 grads this year. This is their wage, this is their hourly rate. And you can start to do some calculations and pull in a figure. Uh, obviously, dummy figures. We're not talking in the millions here, probably, uh, unless we've got lots and lots of grads coming on board, which would be a little bit scary. Um, and then we get into the fun stuff, which is inputting the assumptions that we made uh, to get to our addressable values. This means 
removing our overlaps. So up there you can see that in the dark green, we've got an exper a graduate experience team. They're being a bit pesky. They've gone onto our turf. They're doing something that they think is going to impact and help with people setting up a computer. Um, and they think they're taking 50% of that value. That's great. We still think that we can add on to that. Uh, so in the light green, this is the uplift. And I do one of these light green sections for every solution that we put forward. It means that we're not making a decision on what we should go with based on what's shiniest or prettiest. We're making a decision based on what's actually going to have the biggest impact on our users and the metrics that we care about. So it's really easy to compare your solutions at the end of this. Um, and I also leave in a section around comments because you're going to disagree about how much of an impact you think you're going to have. It's good to capture the assumptions that are going in and it's great to have those discussions about why we disagree with each other because they call out the assumptions and the reasons that we're putting behind those. And it gives us what we're after. In the grey, it gives us value. Um, this one, we're going after financials, uh, but you can even put some assumptions around high, medium, and low to get a feel for like, where you're sitting. But trust me when I say that, uh, as pretty as that spreadsheet is, uh, no one wants to go through it line by line with you, or very few people will. Uh, it's great to have in your back pocket when you're asked tricky questions about why you think you're going to have an impact, or uh, going back at the very end and going, we actually, this was our actual impact versus the estimate on day one. And so we like to bring our numbers to life. And the good news is that often we're doing a lot of qualitative research uh, behind this, and it goes so well with numbers. Uh, qual, quant, it's a classic combo, right? Um, you can't go wrong. So usually when I'm presenting uh, my results back, I've got a bit of a, um, I've got a little bit of an approach that I think is foolproof. I'm sure everyone has their own foolproof approach. And the first thing I like to start with are the things that are no-brainers that we're not going to get questioned about so much. They're the big numbers. It's what our data is telling us. It's, it's going to be hard to question it, let's say. So, for example, our ESAT's low. Our, uh, we know that our onboarding activities can run for over two weeks. Those big statements that really set the scene uh, that aren't too contentious. Next, we like to bring it to life. So I like to talk about what the people are telling us. Uh, so our people are telling us that the approach to onboarding isn't fit for purpose. And then I like to bring this to life. Uh, and you can add your story in here. Maybe it's about uh, your Woolworths experience where you were having to slice bread down two different lanes and also manage the donuts. And the stress that that meant for the people and the impact that that had on our customers. It really helps get buy-in and make sure that we're not just uh, talking to people and giving them a rational appeal, we're also going after an emotional appeal as well. And getting that balance right really uh, is the magic. Next, we talk about what the impact actually is and more importantly, what the projected impact is on the business. Uh, we can fall into a trap of looking backwards and saying, okay, given what we did last year, we think that it's going to have, say, an impact of 500 hours this year. But what happens if we don't actually hire any grads this year? What happens if we double 
the number of grads we hire this year. It's going to have a real impact on the actual value that we're going to drive. So it's important to think about, yep, what today looks like, but what is tomorrow going to look like? What's next year going to look like? Because we're not turning this around in one day. Um, think about the likely timeline you're dealing in with those solutions, and then make sure that you're thinking about that time frame when you put forward your suggestions and your valuations. And hopefully at this point, because we've brought our decision makers and our senior stakeholders along on this journey, it's a no-brainer. When we get to the recommendations and the expected benefits, everyone's on the same page. You're not going to be faced with too many <laughs> curly questions. Hopefully our decision makers have raised them early or you've been involving them throughout this process. So they've been, you've been able to address them as you go. But I also know how easy it is to file and forget. Um, I don't know if you guys face the same problem as me. If you're doing a lot of research projects, it's hard to remember what you did like last year, <laughs> let alone five years ago. Um, and our users, uh, the people in product teams that are going after these opportunities are faced with the same problem. They're also being inundated with a lot of information. And so, it's always good to sit down with them and make sure that we're coming up with something and it can be anything, it's whatever fits with their process. It could be just adding in a JIRA card. Um, but I've put up a lean canvas here or a bit of a riff on it. Again, this is nothing new. It's something product teams love. Um, I think it was developed by Ash Maria. I'm bad with last names. I've massacred it 100%. Uh, but it was developed in 2010. So this is over a decade old, and the only change I've made to it is relabeling uh, revenue impact to value, because I think that revenue impact uh, can be a bit limiting. I think that value means a lot more, especially in the current uh, context that often our organizations are dealing with. Uh, and it means that we can't talk about awesome things like sustainability uh, or more strategic elements as well. So what I like to do is sit down, get everyone involved who will be uh, responsible for taking your recommendations forward. So getting your designers involved, uh, getting your product team uh, in the room and starting to fill out the canvas. You're not going to be able to fill out everything, but there's a lot up there that you're probably thinking, yeah, as a researcher, I've got that information. I can fill that out easily. And the first one uh, will be your problems. So you feel lazy like me. Sometimes I just copy and paste the uh, how might we statement. It's already got our problem in it. It's already got the so that. It covers a lot of information. But if you want to, you can call out each of the individual problems there, but keeping it to a high level. We want this to be an easy document to pick up. Next. Ooh. Next, we've got our customer segments. So. We've already called these out in our key metrics. We've got them called out in our uh, high-level blueprint. It's easy to pull these in. Uh, we've got our experienced hires and our contractors, but we've especially called out our early adopters so that we know where we're focusing. We're not going after everything all at once. And as researchers, it's our job to make sure that we're advising these teams on where the starting point should be or could be. We've got our solutions. Uh, again, nothing too sexy up there. Uh, but at this phase, we haven't committed to anything. And it's okay to start filling out a canvas 
when you're not 100% sure what that's going to look like. It's still good to get it down on a piece of paper so that if you go away for Christmas, you can come back, you can pick it up, and you've still got a pretty good idea of the direction you should be taking. Key metrics, again, not a surprise, but if we do have anyone who's a product person out there, I know, I know the value thing's meant to be the last box that you fill in or one of the last ones. I know that, uh, but I think that we can't leave a canvas until we have this filled out. It's what I always look at when I'm prioritizing work. Uh, and adding this information in uh, makes sure that we're able to prioritize our work, we're able to make sure that the product teams, our, our design teams are working on things that are going to have an impact and are going to be meaningful. So I think I'm running ahead of schedule. Uh, the key takeouts, we've covered a lot. There's so many tools out there and I know that a lot of these tools aren't new and you probably know a few of them, uh, but they're not, um, they're not usually or typically research tools. They're the tools that the people we engage with uh, within organisations use. And so it's really useful for us to start thinking about them as our users. They're the ones using our insights and it's really important to make sure that those insights work for them. And I think that there's a few presenters who've also said similar things, so I really hope that that uh, resonates. Uh, value uh, really shouldn't be the last thing that you discuss. It shouldn't be the last thing that you fill out on your canvas. Uh, that discussion starts on day one or before day one. Um, I always, at the start of the year when we are doing our strategies. Uh, I like to go back and review uh, what the value tree looks like today. Uh, and that's going to help you really think about what value means this year as opposed to five years ago because it will change. Next is to plan your research uh, for the certainty that you're after. You, it doesn't need to be hard. Value and valuations don't need to be hard, we can keep it at a high level and uh, really encourage uh, making, getting comfortable with some ambiguity and making sure that your stakeholders are comfortable with some level of ambiguity. You're going after just enough to de-risk the decision to proceed further. And then consider how you store your research insights. Uh, it's going to make a world of difference. It's so nice when someone comes up with a new idea and design always comes up with a new idea and you can go back in and you can say, okay, we thought that uh, this was going to have a 40 to 60% impact, it's now an 80% impact. And you can turn that around like that. Uh, and it's really easy to say, okay, this now is maybe the idea that we go after. Um, also think about how you're going to connect human stories back to them. I find uh, layering those pain points against our metrics really does create a story that can't be questioned, that does stand up. And if your stakeholder is saying, nah, I want to go after my pet project still, it's really easy to go back and say, tell me why. Uh, we've got a lot of data here saying that this is going to deliver significant value and aligns with our strategic objectives. Tell me why uh, this shouldn't be prioritised. And I've covered a bit in a really short period of time. Uh, I didn't have my notes, so we, are, we were rolling with it. Um, did anyone have any questions? Let me start by saying thank you very much. <laughs> um, 
we, we are at time, though. Oh. So if people have questions, I think they should grab you um, at the bar and yeah. have a chat to you or um, just afterwards. But thank you very much, Jess. That was I'm awesome. Much better over drinks. Okay. That precise. Uh, use color intentionally and be mindful of established color associations. Be mindful if you're going to go um, red has usually is used to represent negative things. Green is usually good. So if you're going for paint with for red, good opportunities in green, good. But then uh, be mindful. Be mindful of those of those uh, associations and define what's important to say through color, right? Because you don't want to put a lot of colors and have your presentation uh, looking like a circus. You want to use uh, color purposefully. Um, now make the presentation structure visually explicit. That will help the readers orientate themselves, know where they are. Um, have clear indexes for sections, types of sections. I know that this, this may be like a rule of thumb, but it's good to, to remind it. Um, yeah, let readers know where they are putting numbers, uh, assign different colors to, to different sections to, um, to make it easier to, uh, to understand where, where they are. And now, the presentation can be more understandable by linking elements in, on different slides. So assign the same template slide for the similar role in the, in the structure, right? If we have information of a certain type, something is a cover, should look like a cover. Something is a um, a finding, it should look like a finding. Um, and maintain the color coding consistent throughout the presentation, right? Here in this example of the, the calendar, you can see how we, we keep consistent, like we have one age group, we have a second age group, and we keep that the same along the presentation so that um, we establish our own language within the, the presentation, right? And yeah, when it comes to template use, these are miniatures, but just by looking at the miniatures, you can tell that you can group them in different in different sets. So someone who has to read a 60-page uh, report may be able to say, okay, well, at least I have an idea of what it looks like. So uh, last thing, download resources, use them. You don't need technical skills to create infographics, but you do need to know what to use and when. You need more semiotic knowledge. Again, if you think, if you have ever played Pictionary and represented an idea through images, it's something that you, you can adventure into this world. So thank you uh, very much. <laughs>